Hello and welcome to Softcats Explain It podcast series. This is the penultimate episode of season five and we are in a reflective mood. This year has gone so fast we were thinking about using last year's tech predictions for this year's. But fear not, we are in no mood to churn out the same old stuff. And to make that point clear, we have an almost new bench of tech experts to share insights, thoughts and other things on the last 12 months and also to look at the year ahead. My name is Dean Gardner, Softcats Field Chief Technology Officer. We're here to explain it. Every episode, our team of experts are here to talk tech in simple, jargon-free language. Over the course of the last 12 months, we have done our best to make sense of many topics, and today is no different, I hope. So the key is in the title, and on that note, I will introduce today's topic. Welcome to the end of the beginning. Yes, it might be the end of the year, but we are certainly embarking on an era of unique challenges for us all to deal with. And one thing's for certain, there will be opportunities and advancements in technology, and today we are going to cover a fair bit of that stuff. To share insights, I'm joined by our panel of chief technologists, and for the first time this year, I will let them all introduce themselves, as the list is far too long. Who wants to go first? (laughs) Uh, Tal, you can go first. Hi, I'm Tal Gandam. I've been at Softcat for 12 years, recently joined the CTO team. Uh, My focus is around hybrid uh, infrastructure and data platforms. I'll go next. So my name's Thomas Rowley. I'm the Chief Technologist for Networking and Connectivity here at Softcat, forming part of our Octo team. Hey, I'm Kieran Newsham. I'm the Chief Technologist for Cybersecurity, also forming part of our Octo team. And hi, I'm Adam Harding. I'm the Chief Technologist and Practice Manager, and I am going to be talking to you today about Workspace. Fantastic stuff. So that's the panel. That's the four of them. All pretty faces, although you can't see them. And the first question I'm going to bring around to the workspace, the workforce, and all of that hybrid working shenanigans. So Adam H., my trusty old friend, fill us in. What's been going on in the hybrid working world over the past 12 months? Okay, so um, we entered 2022, coming off the back of two pretty extraordinary years in the world of uh, digital workspace. The first one was very tactical. It was about keeping the shop open and making sure we had the the devices and the applications and the access we required to uh, keep the organisations moving forward. And then the second year was far more strategic. It was about reorganising ourselves to preserve the positive changes we've made during that first year by baking them into our new long-term hybrid working strategy. And having lived with that for a little while and having let hybrid working find its flow and find its rhythm, 2022 has really seen the mass realisation that user experience is the all-important measure of hybrid working. User experience isn't soft and fluffy. It's about making marginal gains all day, every day, everywhere for everybody that really result in something significant for organisations. It's also about the all-important employee experience as organisations are struggling with the great resignation and quiet quitting and um, struggle to, to, to find uh, talent because of the skill shortage, it all contributes. Um, there's been a shift from service level agreements to experience level agreements, the little smiley faces you get at the, at the checkouts in the supermarkets. Uh, and when you're working remotely, it's absolutely 
true that the reliability and performance of your devices, apps and collaborative experiences are intrinsically tied to your productivity and tied to your happiness. So to that end, there's been a lot more focus on digital experience monitoring. So yes, People are looking at things like the speeds and feeds, but sentiment analysis um, is really high on the agenda now. How do you feel about the service you're receiving? Green lights in the service desk are just simply not enough. You know, we need to understand how this is all coming together from a user perspective and how they feel about it. Um, Secondly, back in the office, big investments have been made into audio and visual equipment in meeting spaces. And I say spaces rather than meeting rooms because it's it's there's lots of hubs now and breakout areas on top of the meeting rooms. And it's all really focused on replicating the ease of joining a Zoom or Teams meeting and fighting the fear of connecting your device to the screen on the wall. Probably thirdly, there's been a massive rise in automation, be that citizen development, be that low-code, no-code automation and RPA, or be that the more sophisticated operations-focused stuff like ITSM, using the likes of ServiceNow or or Halo ITSM. Unemployment is at an all-time low in the UK. The latest figures from the Office for National Statistics show that there were just under 1.2 million open positions in November, and there were were just under 1.2 million unemployed people. Now, in a perfect world, they'd have the perfect skills, but that's just simply not the case. Now, we can use the potential of hybrid working to extend our talent pool beyond our own shores, and we absolutely should be leaning into the advances in accessibility technology to make positions in our own companies more appealing and practical for everyone. But whichever way you cut it, there just aren't enough people to meet demand. So automation is on the rise to give individuals the power of 10 and I suppose teams the power of 100. Absolutely related to the skill shortage, we've also seen people offloading business as usual tasks. So a lot of the work around device life cycles, application life cycles, operating system life cycles that are just going through the motions rather than adding any real unique value to your organization. A lot of those have started to be offloaded as well. So those are, those are the, I mean, there's a, a long laundry list of things we could say, but those are probably the big things. So we've got number one, user experience. The last 12 months is a big, big evolution. We're seeing a lot more of that evolving into the digital experience, the monitoring of that going forward. And we'll talk about next year a bit later. Um, meeting spaces, to ensure the meeting spaces are really meeting that hybrid objective. So it feels like the same experience. The automation is the third area, automating as much as you can. And uh, the BAU tasks, outsourcing those so you don't have to focus on those from a business perspective. You can focus on the higher end tasks to push your business forward. So four key areas, the last 12 months you've seen, and I think we've seen our customers kind of respond and come to us for those areas. So we'll talk a bit about later uh, later about the uh, the next year, because I, th- I guess a lot of that will continue from those subjects. But that's fascinating. I am now going to bring and welcome back, a massive welcome back to Kieran. Um, he joined us earlier this year to answer the big question that everybody wanted to know. Are VPNs dead? We may cover that again today. I don't know, but I'll fire the same question to you. What's been happening in the cyber and security worlds? Hmm. Yeah, no, I promise I won't talk about VPNs this time. But um, yeah, a lot. So what we've seen in cyber in the last 12 months, we'll start with the good news, shall we? Um, I mean, over and above all, we've seen a higher proportion of businesses um, actually have cyber as a priority at a board level. So normally boards um, tend to have their top three, top five priorities. Cyber is firmly now sitting within their top three priorities. I think that's driven 
from a better high level understanding of risk. And that is probably, again, going to be largely driven to have more of a community in and around cybersecurity in 2022 that we haven't had um, you know, in previous years. And that only grows and gets stronger, I would say, year on year. Um, and that thing is kind of fueled by the media as well. A lot of board level executives are seeing this blasted across the media. And if we think about cyber in political terms, it's a very volatile area. It's probably the only area that has any relation to tech or IT that is directly influenced by world socioeconomic and geopolitical events, right? So I think that's a big plus. Organizations in the UK have been able to maintain better cyber hygiene and as a general kind of, well, as a generalization, shall I say, across businesses, we've seen most small and medium businesses adopt um, half of the 10 steps to cyber that the NCSC has brought out recently. So with a large focus of those being on access controls, um, so things like credential management, directory services, uh, vulnerability, those sorts of things people have generally focused on. And we have seen improvements. The statistics say we've seen improvements over those things. And probably the last thing to touch on from a positive side, because we are quite doom and gloom in cyber, aren't we, a lot of the time? And I feel like some sort of harbinger of cyber death sometimes when I'm talking to customers and vendors and stuff like that. But we've been really good at fostering a better, more engaged culture around cybersecurity within businesses in the last 12 months. There's been a large driver and a large focus. Again, that is one of the 10 uh, steps to cyber that the NCSC has brought out for the UK. And we've seen organizations drive quite hard on that. Um, and that's generally in and around having strong cyber people at a board and a feed into the board level, driving that kind of cyber culture. Um, that has obviously influenced a decrease in certain attack vectors, phishing, for example. We've actually generally, depending on what data you look at and whose instant response teams that you trust right um, across the globe, we have generally seen, uh, it's probably a fair statement to say, a decrease in phishing as a and as an attack vector and i think a lot of that is probably dry, not only driven the adoption of better security controls in and around that but also that education and uh, piece that we're seeing in businesses in and around cyber culture and phishing is quite a quick win i think in those kind of areas so they're probably three top positives we could take out of the last 12 months i think maybe some more maybe negatives or things that we've seen go uh, badly, or we've seen an increase in in statistics and, and trends. I would say organisations are generally within the UK, especially, pretty bad at a proactive approach to cyber, and they will generally have a very informal approach to incident management, which does lead to reinfection, bad forensics. Um, longer instant response engagements and more impactful breaches, right? I think the main reason for that is people generally find it easier to maybe look at recovery rather than being more proactive. Um, and I think that's that's probably an area of focus that we need to look at moving forward. We still lack in cyber any sort of quantitative measure of 
the impact of, of cyber incidents. There, are, there is nothing on a quantitative level to go and measure the commercial impact of, of cyber. And no one's really cracked that yet. And I think the, you know, part of the reason for that is we don't really have much of a precedence in cyber. We haven't really set that precedence like we have um, in like the general insurance industry, for example. We've been driving cars for a long time, but we haven't been measuring cyber breaches for a long time, circa 10 to 15 years, right? Um, so I think that that is an area that we will continue to see uh, generalized. And, and that is an area where people will look at risk and they're like, well, I can't quantify this risk. And that leans back into what I was saying around, we do rely on small, medium and large businesses within those businesses. We rely on strong leaders with a good knowledge of cyber to go and translate those messages to boards for them to go and take that seriously and therefore fund cyber initiatives, technology and people within those areas. And I think that the last thing I'll touch on is that we've actually seen a drop in people adopting frameworks such as cyber essentials in the UK. These, these haven't grown as much as we and the government think that they would have by now. Um, and uptake for them is probably still in the minority. Um, I think that's to do with the fact that they are generalized frameworks um, um, for regulatory purposes. And a lot of businesses think they don't apply to them. Therefore, I think the uptake has been slower. And people are engaging partners for a more kind of effective joined up strategy in and around cyber. So they're definitely trying to nail the proactive and the reactive pillars and join them together. But we haven't seen great success there yet. Kieran, fantastic. And just to, to sort of summarise some of that, cyber as a priority at board level, that's, that's in, I mean, that's a shift, isn't it, over the last few years? That was, that's a huge step. Yeah. The 10 steps, uh, the organisations adopting those 10 steps to cyber, what was that body you mentioned and who are they again? Oh, the NCSC, so, you know, the yeah. National Cyber Security Centre, um, which, you know, they obviously um, mandate and underpin quite a lot of the government's cyber security strategy for the United Kingdom. Um, and they offer impartial agnostic advice on how to improve your cyber security posture for both public and private sector uh, companies. Um, and the 10 Steps of Cyber is an initiative to grow, foster cyber culture and improve overall general organization's cyber resilience. And that's a good thing that there's standards now that people obviously are adopting and those guidelines exist, which is great to see, I guess. The cheap ways of being attacked, you know, the phishing kind of angle, mm. that's a positive they're dropping. But obviously, I guess there's a maturity in terms of those organizations looking to find different ways in. Yeah. And I think like if, if I was to touch on that, We've seen a drop in phishing overall, but we've seen a massive increase in vulnerability. So effectively, what that means is what threat actors are looking at and what they're taking advantage of is they don't have to have a user interaction in order to go and, and foster that initial access into a customer's environment or into an organization's environment. They're taking advantage of public facing flaws in web applications, databases, all those types of things, right? Even security controls that you'll have on the edge, such as firewalls, load balances, web application firewalls that are unpatched or have zero day vulnerabilities on, they will take advantage of those to gain initial access. And I suppose that feeds into the next bit, which is being more proactive. So a proactive kind of strategy around building out your own layers of security to meet those 
different ways of trying to be attacked, I guess. Like any any battle they're in, the enemy will always try and find different routes in. You just need to be proactive to kind of meet those those objectives and, and respond to them in the right way. The bit that I thought was quite interesting you said at the end <laughs> around the risk mm. and the lack of being able to quantify the business impact. Mm. We'll talk, I said, we'll talk about, about the next 12 months uh, later, but, but I find that really interesting. Do you think that you're going to get to a point where a business insures itself? And is this already happening where things like cyber are part of those things? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And we have a lot of conversations, of course, and we have been having more conversations in the last 12 months. There's an upward trend within cyber insurance. And normally the question is in and around. There's a lot of questions on it. But normally it's, do I spend a lot of money on insuring myself? Or do I look at that and go, maybe I'd be better investing this money into protecting myself and being more proactive? And I think the customers at the moment and organizations are being faced with that choice. The cyber insurance industry uh, is growing and they are getting more wise and thus their premiums are going up if you haven't got uh, certain controls in place. For example, privilege access management, multi-factor authentication, any sort of security monitoring technology and people and process, that cyber culture. I think we're going to see it monitored and audited by insurers more closely moving forward. And I think that it's actually going to be able to be a lot harder and more cumbersome and a lot more expensive to gain cyber insurance as they set more of that precedence. We've seen, if you look at a direct correlation in insuring your car, right, or insuring yourself to drive that car, the, you know, the amount of people that are now offered a black box to go in their car and measure what times they drive, where they drive to, the distances, how long it takes them to drive those distances, the speeds at which they drive just to lower or increase or make that premium more variable, that's now available to a large age group, whereas previously you'd probably have associated that sort of technology with new drivers. I think that is an evolution of insurers becoming more savvy to the fact that the metrics that they had, their actuaries worked on before, and they plugged into their algorithms and learning models, probably wasn't a true or fair representation of the way people drove. So I think that's probably what we'll see as well in the cyber industry. So they'll have they'll need to get more data from organizations and they'll be more critical with the way they measure that data. And that will, of course, impact premiums and the you know how available the insurance is even going to be for you as an organization. And as if by magic, that's a perfect link into Tal, a new member of the CT clan and an amazing addition, I might add. Data, hybrids, hybrid infrastructure, multi-platforms, hybrid, multi-cloud, wow, all these things. It's a big world, right? So it's it's like a Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner. It's loads on the plate and you're simply probably not going to get through it all. But Tal, I'm going to ask you to give me some views on the last 12 months and some opinions on what you've seen in, in those worlds. And data obviously is a big part of that. Yeah, of course. I, I think we've moved from um, an infrastructure world and customers looking at kit to run business to now a data-driven app modernized world that really helps our customers improve their operational experience back into their their employee base back into their customer base i think that's that, that's been the big change is it's not just about having kit to to keep the business running to keep the lights on it's about using it now to really drive their businesses forward and that's that that I think is 
is a big change. Um, and the messaging that we're hearing from our customers, from industry leaders, from the vendors, it's all about helping our customers generate value out of their data. We're seeing that customers are looking to consume IT in a multitude of ways. Um, and I think it's definitely a case of hybrid platforms now. Um, I think we've moved on from it just being cloud um, because customers want to use multi-cloud, more than one cloud. They want to use more than one site. They want to use different SaaS and PaaS services. But everything is a drive to improve the operational and customer experience. And I think that's really important. So for us as a softcat, it's about getting into the, the heads and the mindsets of our customers and, and their customers to understand what are they trying to achieve and how do we help them put IT or platforms in to, to help them go and achieve that. So to summarize this, it's the, 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 that complexity that I, I illustrated as an introduction, it's trying to actually make sense of that, I guess, and yeah. using apps and data as the, as the driver, because that's yeah. what you're describing. So just getting under, as you say, the mindsets of the customers we work with to understand what those landscapes look like more effectively. Yeah. Yeah, because everybody talks about uh, data being the new oil, but the reality is it's way more than that because data is so unique to each customer and to each business. And the way they derive the value out of that can be way more valuable than anybody else. So it's actually more it's more important and, it, and it's more valuable than just oil because oil you can use the same barrels in different parts of machinery and you get the same outcome. But but data is really different. and and And... A customer can have the same set of data, but generate different different value out of it. And I think that's what we're now seeing is is that drive to to generate the value and to become better than than their competition as a result. And do you envisage that as organisations within sectors start becoming more in tune with that data and that information that's relevant for their industry, will they start using and sharing and selling that information? in those industries, you see that kind of evolving. And does that happen today? Maybe it does. I'm, I'm pr- pretty sure it probably does. Yeah, I, th- I think we are sort of starting to see that. I think we're seeing you know, certain vendors merging different cloud data sets together and allowing customers to feed into different sets rather than manual intervention and trying to create um, pockets and silos of data. People are trying to now see, well, how can we join different data sets together to create more value. And I think we'll only just see that to increase and improve. And as, again, people want to move more into the world of automation, which is another thing that I wanted to talk about was how customers looking to to create more automation, to streamline operations. Um, I think you're going to see more and more that people don't want to be spending hours and hours on Excel spreadsheets to try to generate an answer they want that information on tap on hand because the quicker they get that information the quicker they can do something about it and i, and I think that's that's really important and so process flows and understanding those things i suppose are going to be important and they are becoming more so you know building those maps um customers need to start building those maps between those kind of disparate data sources bringing yeah. those things together to, to, to create the outcome and the answer. And yeah. do you do you see that just, I mean, obviously, we'll, again, we'll talk about the next 12 months, but that's something that I guess is quite difficult for the, the, the sort of customers you talk to from an IT infrastructure perspective. That's a, that's a different layer and a different world for a lot of those people, isn't it? It's a world apart. And you're now seeing uh, um, lots of our customers taking on 
data science teams or, or business in, intelligence teams to try to understand that and what does that mean for us and and how do we create those workflows and what's if, we, if we're ingesting data here how do we how do we get the value of it at, over here and I think that's probably going to be the biggest challenge for for customers and I think that's probably the biggest opportunity from from softcats point of view is if we can understand that and understand what a customer wants we can help them along that journey and we might not be able to tick or, or fill all the all the voids for the customer but we can certainly help them along along that journey for sure yeah so so yeah so it's just to summarize there apps and data um it's the kind of catalyst it's the bit that's driving organizational change and modernizing business but that is being done on a range of platforms of which operational excellence needs to be layered across so you're not going to stop the hyperscalers you're not going to stop on you know on-premises infrastructure evolving the SaaS world all these options is picking the right one for the right task and then being able to operate that effectively that's yeah. exactly it it's what's what's appropriate the right workload or the right data set in the right place i think is is, is what, what what we're going to end up finding and just following on from what kieran was saying i think the other thing that we've seen over the last 12 months is a real drive for customers want to create a more robust data management strategy as well. I think, I think the threat of cyber attacks um, is obviously very real, and I think what customers are looking to do around data is just try to minimise the impact of data loss into their business. So I think there's an acceptance that these guys are really clever and they might penetrate through a wall of defence or multiple walls of defence. But even if that happens, how can we just minimise the impact? to the business of data loss. How can we just get back quicker? Um, how can we guarantee that our critical data is not going to be not going to be affected for too long? So so we've seen a real a real drive for our customers to to invest in those areas. Um, a really good example of that is Office 365, where now you've got data that would typically have sat on premise and on an exchange server now sitting in in Microsoft's data centers. But it still needs to be backed up. It still needs to be secured. And we're now seeing customers that are investing in those sort of platforms because as good as the cloud platforms are, they're not the answer for everything. And 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 so I think we're really, really excelling in, in, in that messaging and helping our customers around around those sort of strategies. Good stuff. And that then brings me on to finally the best till last i don't know you can you can throw things at me um a big welcome to tom rowley the only member where i feel it appropriate to say his entire name don't know why um but what's been happening in the world of networking networking and connectivity because all the stuff we're describing the one thing that has to happen is it needs to be connected so go for it how can we connect it all and what's been happening i think it's quite a big question the network ultimately becomes the glue between everything that we're talking about uh, on this podcast today. Now, I think when we look at a post-pandemic world, um, there's a lot of change that's happened, right? We're now moving to return to office, which we've all called now hybrid working, and that's becoming the new normal. But however, that's not the only change that's happened in the last couple of years. We've also got the change of adoption of SaaS and continued adoption of public cloud and private cloud, which ultimately has meant our applications, our data, our people, they're all somewhere else. And also dynamically changing. They're not staying in the same place all the time. So I guess when I like to think about this in the world of networking and connectivity, I like to think about how has that impacted us really locally and also more widely from a networking perspective. When I think about it locally, 
really, hybrid working has started to really drive the wireless first strategy within many organizations. And that wireless first strategy absolutely is being fueled by the development of uh, Wi-Fi 6. Debuted in 2019, you know, Wi-Fi 6 kind of came to market and said, look, we can service a lot more devices with a lot more data uh, simultaneously than we have ever been able to do before in the world of wireless. Um, Why is that important? Well, you know, over the course of lockdown, people sent out a load of laptops, mobile devices to all of their users. So not only have we got a load more wireless devices within our user base, but also those wireless devices are demanding more data than ever before from content-rich applications like Microsoft Teams or Zoom, where people are now collaborating in a normal fashion. I saw a statistic the other day, we're still at about four to five devices per user. Um, But ultimately, all of those devices over lockdown have now come back into the office. We sit at around 15 billion wireless devices now globally. But I think there's really a bigger picture there, right? If the office connectivity isn't sorted out and people don't have a good experience with wireless when they come into office, and they even had a better experience with wireless at home, I think organizations need to think about that. Because if we do want people to come back into the office, the experience has to be good. And ultimately, for me, when we talk about networking connectivity, that's the job of it. If it's the thing that's connecting everything together, it's got to ensure that we've got a good experience over that network, over that connectivity. So yeah, I think it's a it's a really interesting thought process around how motivated are people to come back into the office if the experience on wireless could even be better at home. Also, just on that, I mean, you know, we've got these kind of innovation in the home where you've got mesh networks now, which are enterprise grade in your own home. You know, it's possible to buy those hubs and get full coverage. If you can do that at home, you know, surely the office, it needs to be a given, right? Absolutely. And and yeah, I think it's even more testament to why people need to really focus on that. As I said, we're definitely moving into a wireless first world. I wouldn't call it wireless only yet. I think there's still definitely things out there which need wires. However, I think we're also seeing a much bigger change going to be coming down the pipe um, in the terms of IoT and the amount of devices that's going to bring. It's also worth noting, really, I think the hybrid working is affecting everyone. But the other big change that we're seeing on that local level is larger, medium-sized organizations really starting to adopt AI-driven and software-defined networking technologies. And I think there's a few reasons behind that. The networks are becoming more complex. There's a few drivers behind that. User demand. We've also got segmentation needed from the from the world of security, as well as dynamic policy, which ultimately follows users wherever they're connecting into a network from. Combining that with more devices and the fact that we all know we're, we're having a big skill shortage at the moment, anything that can reduce my operational resource requirement to run my network day to day is only going to be a good thing. And that comes in the form of things like self-healing, you know, centralized management, centralized configuration um, to ultimately meet, meet all of those complex needs. Now, if I kind of like zoom out, I guess, a bit from there, and we look at the more wider impact of what this means, we very much kind of focus the conversation around local area networking. The wide area network has also massively changed, right? A lot of people today are saying that the internet is becoming the new network. I also think, although SD-WAN really isn't that old, we're starting to see that become commoditized for a lot of organizations because of that adoption of SaaS and public cloud technologies. And to avoid network traffic, I'm to trombone around my environment. So 
I think we're starting to see that change, definitely. And hybrid working is driving that. But also that's partly linked to the world of multi-cloud, right? And people starting to adopt a a multi-cloud world. And when we think about that, we've got to think about how do we connect that world into our on-premise and to our remote users and how do we do that in an effective manner? The reason why people adopting that multi-cloud world are kind of threefold, really. You see people adopting different clouds because they may have application frameworks. That's kind of the I've it's been done before approach, so I know it's going to work. People feel quite comfortable with that. There's also an element of cloud resilience, like I want the ability to run workloads in multiple clouds as a just-in-case scenario. Um, but also I think it gives a lot of organizations res- um, a bit of leverage, if I'm honest with you. When it comes around to renewal time, all their eggs aren't in one basket. It means they do have a little bit more leverage and discussing the commercials uh, of those renewals. Something that we're starting to see quite popular in that area, actually, uh, linked to cost. And we all know we're in a cost of living crisis, right? Um, but very heavily linked to cost is is the world of private ones. So when we look at the data uh, ingress and egress charges of public cloud environments, actually, it's a much more expensive situation if you're going to take that data out of a public cloud and take it over the internet. If you can take that out to a private one or a private network, then costs are going to significantly reduce. So there's another reason why we're starting to see that that kind of adoption happening. The only other point I'd probably make on the wider adoption piece, um, we're starting to see a real rise in fixed wireless access solutions. So this is where organizations are using 4G and 5G public cellular technologies to essentially just get quick connectivity. Previously, it hasn't been adopted as much, but with the iterations of 4G and 5G, people can get a router with a SIM card in it and get a really reliable connection. They're also not having to wait nine months to get a lease line or a piece of fiber installed to the building. So it's becoming actually for many organizations, at least a resilient method of connectivity, which they can get in quickly or a primary method. Many retail outlets actually use them as primary and secondary connectivity methods um, and just have carrier diversity uh, across that. If I was trying to wrap all of that up, I appreciate I've talked about a few areas there. There is probably one more area which covers both the local area and the wide area, which if I'm honest, yes, it does sit in the world of networking connectivity, but like everything in networking connectivity, it really does touch on everything. And that is the world of observability. We talked about a lot of change happening And I think when we see change happen, it's really important to have strong visibility of what's my current state as I start to make changes, as I start to enter the world of transformation. How do I know what each change is having an incremental impact on the rest of my environment? Observability for me, that's the gathering of multiple monitoring solutions. It's consolidating your individual monitoring tools from a network and infrastructure and application monitoring standpoint and taking all of those events, the metrics, the traces from each of those perspectives and correlating them together to give you ultimately a single view of not just an area of your environment, but your environment as a whole. And there's many benefits that that brings, especially in the changing world. You know, it can start to give you a view of user experience. We talked about how that's so important earlier, if we're going to encourage people to come back to office. Can I get a true understanding of what my user experience is? It can actually also introduce things like synthetic monitoring, the ability to run fake requests across my network. We all know that we don't likely make big network changes in the middle of the day. We probably make them in the middle of the night 
and then wait till the user phones up with an issue the next day saying something's wrong gone wrong, the change that I've made has impacted that. We are at a point now where we can make that change and synthetically test to make sure there's no impact of that change on the rest of my environment. The final big thing that it kind of brings to the table is everyone talks about root cause analysis. And I think sometimes with root cause analysis, we very much focus on the world of security, but that absolutely exists in the world of networking connectivity and issues with configuration and stuff like that, right? When we actually look at RCA, about 70% of that time for root cause analysis is spent finding out where the issue is in the first place. We call that MTTK, the mean time to knowing. And ultimately, that's what observability does. It brings the MTTK right down because it allows you to find the issue much quicker because you've got much more visibility across all of your environment and the changes that may impact different parts of it. So yeah, kind of a nutshell, what have I seen uh, recently? But also I think there's definitely technologies like Observably out there pulling the local world and the wide network world together uh, to a single pane of glass. Fantastic. I'm going to, I'm going to briefly try and put some notes down. Local area networks are evolving, becoming more wireless, more connected devices. How do you manage that flow? It's a big, big part of what people have been doing and they're going to continue to. The wide area network, that's kind of stuff outside of that local. Um, it's evolving to meet the multi-cloud complexity and the hybrid working models, which we've talked about earlier. They're happening, they're, they're, they're accelerating, and they're only going to continue to. And then to wrap that up, how do you then get observability around all of that to bring in the telemetry to then respond in a more proactive way to all of that complexity so you're not reacting to challenges that come? Um, so essentially, you are gluing it all together from a local perspective, from a wide area perspective, and obviously from that observability monitoring, the all-seeing eye perspective uh, that we'll use. So all of that's fantastic. Thank you all for that kind of overview. I would say comprehensive overview. Let's put it that way. Um, over the last 12 months. And obviously that feeds into some of the stuff that we're probably going to be seeing in 2023. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to get you in countdown style. We're going to play a game show. Who doesn't like a game show? Love a game show. Love a game show. Predict your tech. So welcome back to Predict Your Tech. And we've got 60 seconds on the clock and we're going to go with Adam Harding. Off you go now. So I think the obsession with user experience will continue and we will see um, digital experience management and monitoring move into the mainstream. I think that we will see uh, the rise of automation continue and it'll take a, a, a new slant as we lean into the world of um, AI ops for workspace, artificial intelligent operations, because we're not allowed to use uh, acronyms uh, for workspace. And I think that there'll be uh, a major revisiting of the service desk to make it fit for the hybrid era. So really about uh, meeting your people where they are, both physically and digitally. 45 seconds. Is that the record to beat? I think it is. The next one on the list, we're going to go Kieran, 60 seconds on the clock for Predict Your Tech. Away you go now. Right. I'm going to say artificial intelligence, but I will defloff it and I'm going to put some actual, you know, meat behind it. I think artificial intelligence in the world of cyber, because I think it's been commoditized to the to the point where we've seen genuine use cases come out for speech prediction and video within things around deepfakes. I think that's going to cause us a large challenge within the cyber 
verse, if you like. And the reason I think it's going to cause a large challenge is I think we do take things for granted that we protect very well, such as email, for example. We have a like the average customer probably has about at least two or three email protection solutions, API driven, inline, um, you name it, in tenant for, for cloud-based mailboxes. And I think deep fakes and chat and stuff like chat GPT is a really good example. That's going to cause us a bit of a challenge. So imitation of human speech, I think um, threat actors are going to take advantage of things like that. Stop. Well done. That was literally on point. I must say, Harding quicker, you're efficient, using up the right time at the right moment. I'm very impressed with that. But we're going to reset the clock and we are going to bring in Tao. We're going to ask you to predict your tech. Go. I think uh, for us, it's going to be around the data analytics side of things. I think that's going to be the real big push for a lot of our customers is going to be how do we get that data? How do we filter it? How do we get value out of it? How do we sell the value? How do we use the value? What do we do with that data? Um, It's going to be really important. Outside of that, I think we're going to see a really big push towards sustainability and how um, customers are are streamlining what they're using, how they're making it more efficient, uh, how they're helping to hit their carbon carbon targets that's probably going to be the two two main bits from our side 45 seconds i think that's pretty much a tie with mr harding for you predicting your tech but interestingly the sustainability one it's it's common isn't it across everything and we're seeing that and we're seeing the rise i mean we're seeing so many uh different bodies we work with certainly that are asking us to help organizations meet those challenges um, going forward good one good prediction we're on to the final Predict your tech with Tom Rowley. Said the name fully again. We are starting the clock to predict your tech now. Okay, so I'm going to cover two main areas. First one, I think we're going to start to see the rise of people connecting to their multiple cloud environments centrally. So we're going to start to see the evolution, really, of those private ones, um, start centralizing control, but also centralizing and giving you, you yourself visibility and control over that wide area network and taking advantages of some of the benefits, such as low latency. However, the main one I want to talk about, which I really do think we're going to start to see the start of it, to be honest with you, is that world of IoT. I think there is a tidal wave of IoT starting to come towards industry, specifically large industrial enterprises, and that's ultimately going to be fueled by the world of private 5G, essentially taking those masks that you see by the side of the motorway or hooked onto the side of buildings, and organizations now having the ability to actually purchase them and broadcast a massive cellular network to connect all of their IoT devices centrally. Observability is going to wrap all of that so we can monitor stop. it. But I'm at time, so I'm going to stop there. <laughs> I think I'll give you a couple of more seconds as well. But yeah, so I, that's an interesting one, the IoT. Um, so let's cover a couple of those things before before we sort of tail it off, because um, there's a lot of pressure there. And I appreciate your time to, to fit those things in. Um, so tech predictions to a point, but trying to kind of uh, accelerate those. So we're talking about service desk quickly. Service desk centralization of those that data and centralization of people's access to uh, stuff. Do you think that that will be an area of investment for organisations and development over the, the next twelve months and beyond? Getting that bit right, Mr. Harding. Yeah, yeah, I do because I think 
organizations are putting so much effort into understanding their people, protecting them, connecting their hybrid workspace, enabling them through training and uh, streamlining workflows and getting the technology ready. And that's great, but that's almost the groundwork. Actually, where the real value, where the rubber hits the road is when it's out there in the wild and the ability to support people as they're out there doing whatever it is you're paying them to do uh, is vitally important. And the time has, uh, times have changed. It's, it's If I've got a problem with my device, it's not useful for me to have to drive all the way back to an office to hand it in to be fixed. Or if I've got problems with applications, we having to do that. We need people to be supported wherever they are in their physical circumstances, whether they're at home, whether they're at the office, whether they're anywhere in between. The same with their digital circumstances. So whether they have a laptop to hand or a, or a, 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 a smartphone or a tablet or whatever it might be. Um, and also with regards to the time, you know, there's a lot of people now that might work um at 11 o'clock at night or they might be working from a different time zone if they're traveling or whatever it might be and it's not useful for the help desk the service desk to be shut down when i've got a question so that building out knowledge bases uh, and build, building out um uh using chatbots and uh building out the ability for you to self-serve more readily all of that's really important so I think that's where, you know, when we're tr companies are trying to elevate that user experience so that they can elevate the customer experience they deliver, I think this is part of it. And to uh, Tal mentioned it, I think Tom mentioned it as well. It's all part of operational excellence. It's about that frictionless um, access to what you need when you need it. And that includes support. It's not just access to an application starting up. Cool. Thank you. And I'm going to quickly jump into AI security. You know, that seems like a really fascinating area because there's so much information being spread around. You know, there's multiple chat applications. There's a whole world of immersed, we didn't talk about, you know, metaverses and the virtual reality worlds that are emerging, these kind of new areas of, uh, uh, of interaction that are going to accelerate. We're sure, based on some episodes we've talked about this previously, we're seeing this already from customers. All of that kind of AI security, it's going to have to get very intelligent very quickly to meet all the demands that are happening across all these things and platforms. Yeah, 100%. I think for the force of good, I don't think artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning has actually helped us in cyber that much. I think it's, it's helped to a degree with detecting certain commoditized attacks that learn well to basically being detected by a a model, an algorithm, some math. But I think we're still heavily relying on humans to go and actually eyeball and analyze that data. And ironically, as usual, you could say, I think the bad guys are probably going to take advantage of these things before the good guys do. And that was basically why, why I was concerned about things like chat GPT. If you look at gesture, voice, and vocabulary-based recognition AI models now, they're so realistic and they've obviously given rise to things like deep fakes. In fact, MIT, Massachusetts, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, that's a mouthful, did a study on the moon landing, well, the Apollo mission, I should say, um, and they recreated it as if it went wrong and it didn't work and it was ridiculously believable. I think this is going to cause us a major challenge within cyber. If you just think about one use case and that is phishing, commoditized phishing attacks are now probably going to more uh, look appear more like targeted phishing attacks, like spear phishing and things like that, uh, with the advent of these AI tools. I also think that 
AI links into other areas of cyber that we can use for good, biometrics, for example, AI has to sit on the back end of those biometrics in order to advance biometric technology. And I did read a stat somewhere that by 2025, 72% of organizations want to drop traditional passwords, right? Um, which is fantastic. And that will rely more on machine identities and, and things like that and go full passwordless. I think that also has connotations into another tech area. So I'm covering like three here, really, aren't I? Uh, and that is blockchain. We've seen blockchain band, you know, used within um, cryptocurrency and Forex for quite a while now, probably for the last 10 years. And people have been predicting its commercial adoption and use case and like, oh, we're going to use blockchain to go change the world. And we've not really seen that take off. No one's really adopted that. But one area of progression, I think, in there that can really help us and link into biometrics and AI, like I just mentioned, is identity. And, and the, the, basically the prospect of creating a ledger for yourself that is uniquely identifiable to you without you actually having to remember or input any of that sensitive information. Ooh, fascinating. Like that. We'll cover that again. That's, that's an episode next year. <laughs> but, but we'll move on to tell quickly. Sustainability. It's a topic everybody's talking about. I mean, give us some, I suppose, some examples where you think the buying habits, I guess, of tech, what people are going to be building, procuring, the impact of maybe sustainability on those decisions. Do you see those being embedded in? It's, it's something that we're going to have to respond to in an effective way. Yeah, I think it's going to form part of um, the customer's consideration on where that workload should sit, how they create their own data centers, or they use colo DCs, or they use platform cloud services. The impact on on sustainability, what what their their own targets are, and how they how they're using IT to to reach those targets really i think i think this could be a real big shift from i'm going to put it where it's closest to i'm going to put it where it's most efficient i think that's that's probably the big difference that, that that we will we will start to see and i think if we look at um some of the the the, the technology partners that we work with they are also now helping customers not only understand what's more efficient but also help them around how to report on it and how to actually understand the full impact through supply chain and everything as well so 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 it's it's a really big topic and it touches across everything but i think that's going to it's it's going to only increase in terms of relevance for for a lot of our customers fantastic stuff yeah uh, we i think we we all see it and i think that's a that's common across all of the priorities that we're talking about today uh, and finally tom we're going to talk about the iot stuff i mean it's massive it's a it's an area these you know we talk about i think you mentioned was it 15 billion devices connected yeah so what are we talking about in the future what, what's the prediction after that i mean with everything you're talking about of iot that's you know infinite in terms of the scale Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting, right? You look at today and we've got 15 billion wireless devices connected globally. By the time we get to about two years from today, hit 2025, over 50% of that data generated globally is going to be coming from the world of IoT. And forget the 15 billion. On top of that, we're expecting there to be around 42 billion IoT devices globally. So really what we see here is an explosion of devices. And the reason why that's actually going to start happening really is because of the developments in technology to support IoT. And that comes in the form of private 5G. 
ultimately allowing us to transmit more data with real-time latency to a load of devices over a large area with that reliable connection. A single private 5G deployment now, I think, can support up to a million devices on a single deployment. So just some really kind of mind-boggling numbers. And I think it will also give birth to the IoT world, followed by Edge Compute to support all of that real-time data processing. We're starting to see examples of that come out in the world of ports and factories, very big kind of industrial enterprises. Um, And I think there will be some challenges in that space as Ofcom has released some licensing already. They're the regulators for radio frequencies of of, of this kind of sort in the UK, but they are a limited amount of licensing in, in the spectrum available today. Bringing it back though to Kieran's point, I think it's interesting, right? When we look at that, the power of AI and for good and for bad, Where does AI really get its intelligence from? Well, in my mind, it comes from having a massive amount of data. The amount of data that's going to be generated from the amount of IoT devices becoming deployed, uh, I think is going to become a huge fuel source for AI. Um, So I think as well as we see that rise of IoT starting to make its way into industrial enterprises, enabling us to move from automation to autonomy within the workplace, I think we're also going to see a massive jump in the world and capabilities of AI and ML. Um, I mean, it only takes you a second, really, doesn't it, to think about how many Amazon Alexas and Google Homes are deployed around the world and how much even hearing our language has helped develop their language and understanding of how we communicate between human and machine. So, yeah, to wrap mine up, very interesting world of IoT fueled by private 5G. I think is on the horizon. So if we get this right and we collect all the data points over the next 12 months, next year's tech predictions, there'll just be a bunch of virtual engines talking about these things and predicting the next 12 months. Oh yeah, we're all going to be made jobless by AI, uh, certainly within the next uh, next two years, at least the people on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I scripted my entire monologue through chat GPT, <laughs> by the way, so... <laughs> And next year's podcast will be recorded in the metaverse as well, 100%. <laughs> that, that has to be a plan, right? We have to do that, I think. Yeah. And it won't be us. It'll just be avatars. <laughs> yeah. Coming, <laughs> avatars. coming live from the metaverse. <laughs> yeah. um, let's round it off there. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been fascinating, as always. It's been interesting. And um, all we know is that tech is going to grow. It's going to innovate. And we're front and centre. And we're continually... I would say on the pulse of it and we're going to be here to support customers, support you, the vendors and anybody who's listening um, uh, to take stuff forward. And we'll see you in the new year with a new series of Explain It. Um, Thank you all to the panel today and we will come back and speak to you soon. Mm